I rambled that out. Why don't you guys do that? Like, why aren't more restaurants thinking about like how the experience is going to change? Oh, sure. Just drop that bomb and we'll just come back to it. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool, but I'm not the one risking my money. So <laughs> I'm just armchair quarterback in here. <laughs> now we're taking it a step further and saying those metrics are going to be harder to, to make look pretty. I think the answer is actually it's no with an asterisk. Hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast, the first podcast of 2022. Uh, even though we're recording this a few days before it drops, I have a feeling that we will be at least waist deep in Omicron, if not uh, if not deeper by the time we get there. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul and I are sitting at home right now, but I guess the question is, I have flights booked for next week. I'm 70% likely that I'm getting, getting on those flights. Uh, where's your head? Uh, I'm in the same boat. So I've got uh, two family trips booked, uh, weekend trips booked, one for next week, uh, next weekend, and then one for three weekends from now. But we'll see what happens with Omicron. So uh, we're doing a lot of at-home tests and uh, crossing our fingers. <laughs> yeah, side note, I believe I bought a pallet of Binax Now tests uh, last night. Where'd you get uh, those? I, like, I've been piecemealing them from like, uh, Dana's found a couple on like walmart.com and walgreens.com, but uh, where are you finding yeah, so pallets? So just to be clear, um, I'm your dealer now, and uh, you just uh, you just let me know. But no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna release on the air where I got them until right. I know I know that once I get a confirmation that they're being shipped, I will be happy to release it. But uh, uh, right. but I want to make sure I actually get my pallet first. All right, if you all right, if you if you if let's just talk after the show because I might need a pallet for bump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and by the way, just in case anybody's wondering out there, a pallet of Benax Now test is 864 tests. That's great. That's so great. That's so Ed too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been it's been a rough couple of days for the restaurants, but um, but we're not stuck on Omicron. There's so much going on, and you know, like we put a bunch of ideas in the spreadsheet to work on this week, and I think you and I both kept coming back to this notion that there's just a disgusting amount of money out there, and it, you know, it, it's sort of like you know, I, I I don't remember if it was you that had this, this phrase, or maybe it's you know my partner Russell. Um, it was you know like in the beginning. Uh, you know, private equity uh, was was solving this problem when banks wouldn't loan money to people. And the only way to start a company was you either had to go to a bank or you had to get money from your friends and family. And so now it's almost like the investors are sort of like, um, you know, the afterthought and like all these startups are there to feed this desire for all this money. And, um, you know, AngelList, which is a company you and I know well. In fact, I believe you're an investor in mm -hmm. AngelList. Yeah. Um, you know, they started this fund, and we'll put this in the show notes. There's a, a link to a TechCrunch article. They started a fund that essentially says, hey, we're going to use some level of machine learning, um, and we're going to invest in companies based on their hiring velocity. Meaning if, you know, if their job postings are getting more applicants than other companies, then AngelList is more likely to invest in them with this fund. And uh, I, I, I'm going to stop right there and just like, you know, I have strong opinions on this, but I, I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, look, I think, okay, so on the one hand, I am surprised it took this long for a quant fund to get stood up. Uh, that's I, I thought it would have happened years ago. Maybe it did. I don't know. Um, and I didn't know about it. Uh, but on the other side, 
you know, look, investors are chasing yield. We're all chasing yield. Um, and I guess here's what I would say. I personally don't look at hiring velocity as, as a indicator of future success when I'm investing in a company. I think you're the same way. Um, but, but I think that these new funds are getting set up, uh, probably for, you know, uh, to, to be really simple about it, I think for two reasons. One is that I think investors, uh, are getting, uh, you know, antsy about returns. They want to get more yield somewhere. And so that, that drives this kind of behavior. But the other more optimistic reason I think this is probably happening right now is that a wider and wider variety of investors are now starting to understand startups. So I, I don't know, like maybe I'm in a really optimistic mood today. And while I will admit that I wouldn't invest my money in that fund, <laughs> even if I had a chance, um, optimistic Paul says, hey, look, this is this is the way that, you know, um, the industry has been going slowly, slowly, slowly. And now all of a sudden, right. So like, think about it this way, uh, prior to 2010, you know, the institutions like the venture capital institutions were the ones primarily putting money in. I think, you know, this last decade, 2010 to let's call it 2020 was really what I call the rise of the angels. Uh, you know, as startup costs went down, it became more affordable for more people to invest in. Um, and now I think where we're getting at, you know, is to this point where, um, there's an even wider variety of, of, of firms that are, that are stepping in now. Like it, like it almost seems like now family offices are getting involved. Now you got quant firms even more aggressively getting involved. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but I'm not the one risking my money. So <laughs> I'm just armchair quarterback in here. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, this this sort of speaks to one of the other things that we had on our list to talk through today. And, and again, uh, link in the show notes for folks that are um, folks that want to follow along. Um, just a quick aside before we dig into the the money on the sidelines, um, you know, guys, make sure you hit the subscribe button uh, on whatever platform you're listening to be the first to get our new episodes. And you can also shoot us questions at show at results dot com. Um, Paul and I are always on Twitter uh, for the most part. He spends a little bit more time on Facebook than I do. Um, someday I'll figure out Facebook, but it's probably not going to be today. Uh, he is at Paul Singh. I am at Pizza in Motion. And for those folks that are uh, listening on Spotify, hey, Spotify now allows you to rate and review podcasts, something new. So uh, hit that button for us. Um, so this Wall Street Journal article, like high level, you know, for folks who might not have a subscription, is that they're they're estimating that there's almost a trillion dollars sitting on the sidelines ready to come in. Um, and when I take a step back, so you talked about like all these new vehicles, and I think one of the ones that this article touches on that you didn't mention, but I know is foremost on both of our minds are our SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies, which is essentially uh, a more translucent. Uh, opaque way to take a company public. Um, and so like all of these things are are driving up the price of startups in some way, shape or form. And if there really is, you know, a trillion dollars of dry powder out there um, just waiting to invest in things, I think, you know, this this fund that AngelList um, has put together is really like, um, you know, not quite a rounding error, but it's but it's just like one of dozens of different ways we're going to see people try and segment, as you say, while they're chasing yield in different ways. And it sort of it sort of dovetails into the, you know, the J Jeremy's tweet that you that you tagged about um, about about where we're going to see thinning of the herd. 
And it just, it's going to be so interesting to see how all this, how all this money comes into 22, especially when we've talked about it ad nauseum. One of the biggest tools that investors use consistently, um, you know, CAC um, as a way to evaluate, you know, whether a, co a company was viable to invest in is now, you know, a, a horribly unreliable metric based on all the tracking changes with, with iOS. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a couple questions baked in there. Like where, do you wanna, where do you want to start? Because I'll, I'll go, I'll riff on them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so let's 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 dig into. Uh, let, here's the question: If you had to look forward into 22 from a crystal ball standpoint, and you and you think about everything that's happened with um with with tracking and how that's changed how companies make money, and 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 you've got all this money sitting on the sidelines, you know, to to Jeremy's tweet about you know he thinks that there's going to be a real thinning of the herd in DTC. Do you do you think that there is actually going to be a thinning of the herd in DTC? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think you are going to see a thinning of the herd in 22. I think that um, in broad strokes, the the companies that raised a seed round in the last 12 months uh, are probably now like scrambling to figure out how in the world they're going to hit the targets they probably need to hit in order to get to that next round. It's just way more competitive now. Um, on the other side, I don't know, you know, the, the, the companies that are, whether you're funded or not, the companies that are the going to be affected the most are going to be the ones that are just the earliest stage, like the bootstrapped ones, the mom and pops. And, you know, I had an entrepreneur, actually, it's somebody I, I, I don't want to like, uh, you know, let, uh, you know, let their, put their stuff out there by name. But I was talking to somebody two days ago and they've got a retail store. So they were a tech startup company, you know, that I'd invested in a long time ago. Unfortunately, that company didn't work out. Uh, you know, they moved on and they started a retail business uh, that did really well in the Midwest for a while. And then CAC hit them. You know, margins are thin in retail. And so now that person reached out, you know, a couple of days ago and was like, hey, what does it look like maybe to work together? And I don't know. I, I guess for companies like us, it's going to be really fascinating to kind of think about what we want to do there. Like, do we start, I don't know, aqua hiring some of these companies? I don't know. I, I don't know. We're going to see, but there will be a thinning of the herd on the extremes though. I don't think, I, okay, let me, let me rephrase. Cause maybe this is, this is where it's either going to get really good or really bad. So I think on the extremes, it's going to be business as usual in 2022. So what I mean by that is I think, Early stage companies are still going to be able to raise their first round. There's just so much money floating out there right now with with early stage angels. They they're going to get funded. So that's not going to change much in 22. On the other end of the spectrum, the companies that are let's call it later stage, uh series C, D, MES, whatever, those ones are also going to get funded just fine in 22. I mean, there's just too much money out on the sidelines looking for those pre-IPO kind of deals. But the middle of that barbell is in danger. Uh, so, you know, those companies that did raise money, you know, six, eight, nine months ago or whatever, they're going to be scrambling. It's going to get harder and harder to raise that next round, whatever you guys call that. And I think that is unfortunate for them, but for companies like us... Could be an interesting aqua hire frenzy. We'll see. I could definitely see aqua hires picking up, and I agree with pretty much everything you said, which is rare for us. Um, I think you know, if I think about it from an investing strategy, as you said, we're probably putting out more you know initial checks, you know, um, you know, 
25, 50K starter checks, whatever they are, taste to get into companies, as you say early on. Because I think like there was always this problem of if you're a startup and after you've raised your first round, if there's any sort of stagnation, it's obviously harder to raise a second round because when you were starting out, it was a white, it was, it was white canvas. And so like you were telling a story to an investor about what your plans were. Once there are metrics, I mean, obviously it's harder um, if you didn't succeed against your metrics. Now we're taking it a step further and saying those metrics are going to be harder to to make look pretty because CAC is going to be a lot harder to to really um, to really throttle in 22. Um, but on the flip side, like, you know, these SPACs that just have money sitting there trying to take companies public, I think the drag along of that for that side of the barbell is that the the people that provide, say, like mezzanine funding, which you, you noted, like those folks are going to want to be pushing hard to 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 get that slug into a company to push them into a SPAC to take them public. And, and, and with the hopes of maybe smaller returns, but more quickly, just because there's so many SPACs out there waiting to take cash. So that that side of the, the machine seems like it'll work well. Um, and to your point, I think this middle part of how does a company raise a second or a third round and aqua hires could make a lot of sense here for companies because and it, it's going to be this is going to move quickly um, because, you know, look, I mean, we're almost six months now into the the asking apps not to track. So like in the beginning, obviously not everybody had the new software and, and all that stuff. But I, I would have to imagine this is accelerating and CAC is getting you know exponentially harder to throttle. And so, you know, 22 means unless you're killing it, your A or B is going to be a lot harder to raise. A hundred percent. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, uh, you know, about that thing I told you about or talked to you about before we hit the record button. But let me put, let me just kind of say that this whole topic we're talking about is one of the underlying fundamental reasons why I'm going to do some really interesting stuff in 22 personally and professionally. Oh, sure. Just drop, just drop that bomb. And I'm we'll just, just gonna, come back I mean, I'm just gonna drop it. And you and I've talked about it even before the show for a half hour, right? You know, the, the, the reality is that this is how it all ties together is that, you know, as that frenzy starts to pick up in 22, I, I, like, you know, when, when I think about it, I'm just approaching this whole upcoming frenzy the same way I think about building an, uh, an angel investing portfolio. Uh, you don't become a better investor by doing more deals. You actually become a better investor by um, seeing more deals. And so yeah. same theory applies here. You know, there's a, if, if we can agree that there's a frenzy gonna, that, that's going to happen in, in, across the DTC space in, in 22, then in order for me to be in the best spot for bump, to be in the best spot to, 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 to do the right thing, we need to be able to see as much of those um, companies in the middle as possible uh, so that we're there and we can figure out, you know, if it's a fit for us. So. Uh, we'll talk more about that on another uh, episode here in a little bit. But yeah, I mean, big, bold predictions for 22, though. I think uh, um, it's going to be a fun year, depending on which side you're on. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting, Like, I think, as you said, like everything's harder. Because um, I think, you know, like, we, you know, like we've like we touched on DTC, but I think this really, this applies to pretty much everything out there. The, this, uh, I mean, probably more so DTC and SaaS than the look, the person looking to start like a brick and mortar business, but, um, but, but this, this, this theory on, um, you know, investors chasing yield, um, but, but having this really uncertain 
uh, ability to figure out how a company is growing. It also makes me wonder, and, and we talked about this prior to recording. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll be curious to hear because I, I don't think I, I don't think I, I don't think you answered before we uh, hit the button. You know, w- there's always been this philosophy, uh, not always, but very frequently there's this philosophy for investors of like, I just want you to grow. I'm giving you money. I want you to grow. I don't care about profitability. You know, I, I wonder if cash burn now becomes. I mean, we know cash burn is going to become more important to founders because it's going to be harder for the for for early early and potentially mid stage founders to 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 raise more money. But does cash burn now become a flag where investors aren't just looking for um, growth at all costs? They're looking at sustainable growth, such that hey, we know it's going to take you longer to figure out how to zone in on your CAC. We we need you to burn less cash over time. Um, yeah, I just I wonder I wonder how much investors will tolerate huge uh, attempts at growth with burn without necessarily the the path carved on how they're going to do it. You know, I'm trying to be kind, Ed. But first time for everything. I, I think you are overly optimistic about the rationality <laughs> behind <laughs> venture investing. <laughs> like, here's the thing. So your fundamental question is, I think. Given what's about to happen or what is happening, will we see uh, maybe more discipline from the investor community, you know, in terms of moving away from a growth at all costs mentality? Is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Look, the, the answer is no. I, I, no way. I think, um, I think the answer is actually it's no with an asterisk. I think for individuals like you and me that are investing, you know, not out of a fund where we're, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking whether or not, you know, we're, we're investing the right thing. I think we'll probably get more discipline because we will feel the pain more acutely <laughs> if we lose the money. But for the institutions, all these, especially all these micro VCs that are raising, I mean, you, you see them just as much as I do, like all these like new two to $15 million funds that seem to get set up every other, you know, day that ends in a Y. Those people are getting paid on management fees and they're in a really hard pickle right now because like the, on the extremes and, I, and I've been in their shoes. I mean, I, I've raised money. Sure multiple times for multiple funds and they're in a really awkward spot because if they don't deploy the money right if they want to be rational and they want to like hold the money a little bit longer than the original deployment cycle pre-pandemic and pre-ios 14 that's going to require a lot of lp patience which at least in my experience is not in high supply because the lp is thinking like hey i'm paying you management fees deploy the money figure it out right so so i don't know i guess what i'm just saying is the 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 incentives are too far misaligned i think you know the 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 uh, particularly the micro vcs who are are probably in the most precarious spot right now um they they they're in this weird spot where their lps probably wanting them to deploy because they're chasing yield and the and the VCs thinking, oh man, I I should probably like hold a little bit and 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 you know readjust to the market and and you know that sort of thing. But the mismatch is there. Like like the LPs chasing yield, the, the the VC wants their management fee. 
the more and more we talk about this, and, and I could bore you to death with it, like those those are misaligned. They're just completely misaligned. You and I have talked about this. I mean, oh. even a decade ago or whatever when we met, right? Like, you know, uh, you're you guys, I think, are very smart about not paying fees, right? And I think that, but that 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 is not a um, common trait. <laughs> we could do an entire episode on uh, me you know, building the soapbox, climbing on the soapbox of, you know, the the sheer hatred for two and 20 and the sheer desire to see the, the, the whole industry move to a like zero and 30 formula or zero and 20 or whatever. But like, you know, the, yes, interests are not aligned and we should do an entire show on on that ugly underbelly. I mean, when I was when I was raising funds, the least worst way I could figure it out. And, and I know we're kind of sh- jumping all around here now, but you know, this, this is interesting because you're right. Like in a perfect world, you'd have 0% carry and you'd be comfortable paying a higher, I'm sorry, 0% management fee. Right. And you'd be carry. comfortable with a higher carry in a, in a, but, but in a, but practically that doesn't work because the, you know, the fund or the fund manager has to eat. Right. And, and so um, how do you deal with that? Well, I've seen some interesting things over the years where people have done like fixed fees and stuff like that. But what, what I did, um, you know, as recently as like 2014, maybe 2015 was, uh, a decreasing management fee, you know, on a 10 year fund, you start out at 3%, but then you aggressively back it off by half a percent every year and it blends down. Um, and then, but on the other side, the carry went up. So, you know, it's like, once I get you your one X back, I'm taking 20%. And if I get three X back, I'm taking 25. If I take five X back, then I'm t- like, maybe there's, I don't know. I've been out of the LP GP game for a while. Maybe, maybe people have found better ways to do it. I, it here's a topic for another episode at some point. I don't know. Like, I, I think I, I keep coming back to this idea in my head over and over that I think for some of the biggest industries right now, like, let me, let me just use the women's health space, because that's kind of what I'm in right now. That's a really large industry right now, and, or it has always been, right? And the reality is I'm coming to, I keep coming back to this, this kind of conclusion that I don't think that uh, venture-backed companies can disrupt big industries like this. Like, I think you have to be bootstrapped somehow. Um, and that'll be an episode, maybe we'll do an episode on that later on. But anyway, I know I just kind of took you off topic there. But no, uh-uh. I, no, I love how uh, optimistic you are today. You're you're thinking that venture capitalists are uh, rational. I love that. I mean, I, who are you? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I still don't think they're rational. I just. I hope that. I hope that the that the tail stops wagging the dog someday. Um, and I will. I will note that. So we're you know, uh, call it 20, 20 ish, a little over 20 minutes into the episode. And, um, I, I usually shut Slack off, uh, when we record, I've left it on just based on where we are today. And in the 20 plus minutes we've been recording, I've already had three employees test positive for COVID in the past 25 minutes. That's so, wild. Uh, it's, it's like a wildfire out there and it's going to keep going. Um, all right. So I'm going to like, we've got, I think we have enough, uh, room for one more topic. I'm, uh, uh I'm going to put you in the in the bullseye so we can either we can either tackle DoorDash and Uber Eats or we can tackle uh, your thoughts on the middle ground between old school retailers and new school startups where do you want to go well you know I think 
I think both of those are probably somewhat intertwined. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's kind of set this up. So uh, you you'd put something in the show notes there about um, Walmart's going to start making local deliveries for Home Depot and 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 you know. I, like I, I don't want to steal your thunder there, but you know I think your your overall thought there was like, is that good or bad? Is that a, 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 looking at the notes here? Is that a renaissance or a train wreck? Um, <laughs> and in a similar vein, I was have been thinking a lot about you know this middle ground. Like you know I uh, you know as I start to think about 2022 and sort of some of the stuff that I hinted at earlier, um, one of the topics I've been thinking a little bit about this week is um, this there there is this like you know, intangible, but, you know, real divide between the uh, incumbent retailers and all the upstart, you know, DTC, e-commerce, you know, people, Um, you know, and and what I mean by that is that like, you know, I'm in a bunch of little e-commerce Slack groups and stuff like that. And, you know, inevitably at least one time, uh, in every conversation, somebody somewhere in Slack will say, oh, and those idiots at <laughs> insert some large retail corporation, right? Uh, and then on the other side, I, I you know, I, I know a couple folks uh, at, at like corporate development teams at some of those same companies and I, I'll like talk to them once a month and they'll inevitably say like, oh, those kids with their startups, you know, they're never going to touch us. The point is it feels like it's such a divide it's like us versus them. And, and so I've been thinking about like, what is the middle ground up the, you know, to, 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 to exploit there. But anyway, I just rambled quite a bit. All that to say, I think both of these topics are intertwined. I, I think that like, let's, let's actually just start with yours. So, you know, you've got, uh, you, you posted a link, to, you'll post this in the show notes, but, uh, uh, business insider article about Walmart, starting to make local deliveries for Home Depot. Is that good or bad? Like you, you, your specific question is, is that a train wreck or is it a renaissance? I think it's probably a little bit of both, but, but it's the new reality. I mean, here's the thing. Retail is never going to go away. I mean, there's, I still need to be able to run over to CVS to get cough syrup, right? No, no two-day free prime is going to help me if my kid needs it. <laughs> but I think, so, so, so you are going to have like, like brick and mortar, it's always going to be around. The, like what you're really seeing now is just a shift of how that physical space is utilized. And it's going to be a bit of a train wreck while the industry sorts itself out. And it's going to be kind of great for all of us. I mean, you and I as consumers are going to, are going to benefit from this over time. Um, but it's probably pretty messy. Um, it, the interesting thing is, is Walmart is large enough to, you know, to, to really be able to make an impact here. Um, and they're probably swinging at Amazon. I bet. I mean, that not. I bet. I mean, hundred percent. They're swinging at Amazon. I just think it's really bold. I think it's really bold that they're doing that because there's there are a lot of other retail chains that have not done that yet. Well, and I'd I'd argue, and I'm not saying that they're wrong to do this, but I I, mean, I think I'd argue that um that that Walmart ha- we, that we would never consider Walmart to to be to currently so in their in, in their iteration from you know the day they were created till today we've never thought of them as as an efficient last mile provider like their 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 value is in being able to get goods ridiculously cheaply to well located central points in communities um most towns only have one walmart obviously bigger urban areas all that stuff but like a lot of the rural areas in the country 
have one Walmart and, and there are, you know, maybe 15 or 20 towns in between Walmarts, but everybody knows that, that Walmart will have all the stuff they need, but Walmart isn't going to get, you know, I'll use the example of like where we got our code vaccine was down in, in like rural North Carolina, Tabor city. And there was a Walmart like 20 so miles north of Tabor city where we got our, our vaccine. Yeah. Walmart isn't delivering. They're not covering that last mile from, from that, that store in central North Carolina to Tabor city because there's no driver network there. So like there's this Uber and DoorDash network that in theory, and like there's last mile providers like laser courier and stuff like that, that I'm, I'm assuming that Walmart is using for, to, to help establish this, this mesh network of being able to make these deliveries. Um, and that works in urban, uh, it works great in urban, um, probably works even better in suburban, um, just because there's, um, you know, more cars to move stuff around in and still plenty of density. Uh, it fails miserably in rural, um, but so does Uber and DoorDash and all of these things, just because there's no, um, uh, you know, no critical mass of, of drivers and people who need the goods. And so, like, well, I think the Walmart and the Home Depot thing is sort of like cats laying with dogs. Um, and, and I'm not sure how that ends up. It, like the, the larger question when I say like, you know, is Uber and DoorDash a renaissance or a train wreck? Like I still come back to this philosophy that when I look at Uber and DoorDash and I think about what they're creating, they're creating a model that um, virtually no retailer that uses DoorDash and Uber Eats feels like they're doing an excellent job. Virtually no customers like, wow, DoorDash and Uber Eats are excellent. Um, you know, what I hear most commonly from folks is, hey, you know what? Sure, my food's going to be a little bit colder. Um, it's going to take longer to get here, all that stuff. But look, I don't have to leave my house and I've got my kids and I'm babysitting. And so I'm willing to pay more and wait longer so that I don't have to move my kids into the car. Like, so they're solving a problem, but they're not, but they're not checking all the boxes. There's, you're, you're, there's that trade-off. I'm spending more money I'm, and, it's, and it's taking more time. I'm getting a lower quality product, but I don't have to leave my house. Got it. Check mark. But that customer is not fully satisfied. They're just, it's filling a need. Um, it's the, it's the less bad choice. And so then, then you've got the investors in these companies and, you know, whether you feel good or bad about it, like certainly I, I wouldn't say that we're sitting here today saying that, that the investors in, uh, like late stage investors in Uber Eats or, you know, DoorDash or, you know, Uber as a company or DoorDash, like are, are killing it right now with where their returns or theoretical returns are if they're not public. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of people to, to have a win there. And it still feels like from a, from a business standpoint, like, so you take this Walmart and go looping all the way back around, you have this Walmart and Home Depot partnership now, and you say, all right, well, you know, they're going to deliver these goods. I, I still have trouble figuring out like there's only so much of the pie you can, you can carve up here because you still can't, like, e even with the cough syrup locally, you still can't charge $15 locally for the cough syrup that normally costs three. So the pie isn't really getting significantly bigger. But more and more people are taking slices of it because for sure Walmart go local if they're doing this for Home Depot is taking a small piece of whatever that driver um, is is getting, whether it's Laser or Uber Eats or DoorDash. It's like we keep slicing these white labels smaller and smaller, but it doesn't seem to be a sustainable model for how somebody can do this long term and make money off of it. Yes. I, I, here's what I'll just say about that. I mean, let me start with a cliche. First, uh, this market that you just described is the classic, you know, winner take most kind of thing. Like these, 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 uh, all these different like last mile delivery services are now duking it out. You got yeah. the incumbent like Walmart, 
uh, or I shouldn't say incumbent. You got this like retailer that's moving into the space. You got, uh, you know, a bunch of not really startups, but like larger companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to do delivery. I mean, it's, I think it's a war of attrition. I think you're absolutely right. There cannot be, you can't keep slicing the pie, but so far, right? So what's going to happen is it's a war of attrition now, but, but back to what we talked about earlier in the show, what I think is interesting or what's going to make it a bit of a train wreck, um, is that Walmart and companies like it, publicly traded companies like it have access to, you know, capital through that source. Yeah. And on the other side, you've got all this money, particularly later stage money that's floating around that, that, you know, is likely available to some of these, um, slightly later stage last mile delivery, uh, you know, companies. So it's a war of attrition with capital available to the, 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 the few big players that are, you know, still fighting it. It is going to be a bit of a train wreck to watch from afar, but for you and me as consumers, one, the dust settles, it should make things easier. You're right. Like I'm not, I probably wouldn't pay 15 bucks for the, the, the cough syrup. That's three. Like rationally, I agree with you that on that. But then, look, you got kids. I got kids. Then there sometimes there's a moment where you're like, I just need to get it, and I can't get out of the house. Yeah, yeah. And that I bet you that happens more often than than we probably realize. Um, yeah. But I, anyway, I I think it's gonna be really fascinating to kind of see how that all plays out because you know life is just gonna be a lot different for both you and me and everybody listening to this. This this particular topic though kind of makes me think about um, this question that I come back to from time to time, which is. You know, like for better or for worse, you know, you and I have been around enough startups and around enough businesses that we get asked, I would imagine you get asked a lot of questions from other people like I do. And one of the questions I always get, uh, you know, I'd say at least once a week in in my travels or whatever is, uh, where do you think this industry or that thing is going to be in three, five or 10 years? I mean, that question comes up a lot. Yeah. And and I, I, I think that people ask that question genuinely because they're wondering. And the thing that I'm trying to get to though is, is I think the question that people don't ask often enough is what things won't change over the next three, five, or 10 years? Because there are some massive businesses that are going to be built around that. And this, what you just talked about is one of those. Like what is not going to change over the next three, five, and 10 years? It is in this context, it is you and me as consumers gradually expecting our products faster and faster and faster. And cheaper. And cheaper. And so um, there's going to be a train wreck of, of, of these, you know, these upstarts and the incumbents and all the capital flowing in. It's going to be kind of wild to watch, but like it's going to get better for you and me. And, and this is true of every industry. Like, you know, somebody, I was doing a talk with a little group uh, last week in the women's health space. And this question came up, like, what do you think is the the next big thing in, 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 in the women's health space, particularly in pregnancies or the next three, five or 10 years? And I let the other panelists go first. And, you know, they talked about innovation and all these other things. And when it was my turn, I was like, guys, I got nothing for you. Here's the deal. I think we at Bump are in the business of entrepreneurship, not innovation. So when I think about what our moms want, like you can't make the baby any faster than, you know, seven, eight, nine months or whatever. They, they want the baby to be healthy. They want the baby to be comfortable. They want to be comfortable. They want to be healthy. Like those things are the things that are not going to change. And for us as a business, like we're not here to innovate and make, like let, let somebody else do that. 
we're here to get them those things faster, quicker, easier, you know, get all the friction out. And not to make that about bump, but I would bet you for the people listening to this, that's if you just replace the name bump with whatever your company is, it, it's all the same. Like even with your restaurants, people got to eat. You know that. Like, yeah, every day. And I just want to raise our cholesterol. That, well, there you go. Right. And so, but it's like, you know, I think maybe here's the thought in all this, rather than trying to think about how to make something better uh, or create something new, what we should all be thinking about is, is what is that thing that our target customer is only going to expect more of over the next three, five, and 10 years? Like that is a like deceivingly simple, but important uh, conversation that I don't think enough people are having, you know, like, sorry, I know we're all over the place here, but for example, restaurants, I, I'm going to, I don't know if I can put you on the spot here real quick, but like the thing I haven't figured out, one of the things I haven't figured out is like, okay, here's a cliche idea that I think about a lot, but I don't know how you'll take this. Um, okay. Meraki. Do you remember those guys? Meraki was like a, um, they made like uh, Wi-Fi access points and stuff like that. And, and probably like seven, eight, nine years ago, they got acquired by Cisco. So like now you can buy Cisco Meraki okay. access points. So it's M-E-R-A-K-I. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Sorry. I and saying, yeah. what I thought was really interesting, and those are consumer grade things. They're not, mm -hmm. you know, they're not terribly expensive. Uh, I mean, I haven't looked at them recently, but I would bet you they're like 99 or 129 bucks or whatever. But I remember looking at those things like 10 years ago, and what I thought was really cool about them is that in the setup, they had this, um, I think it was a default setting where you could, instead of having people have a, like, let's say you created a guest network at your place of business or whatever, rather than have a guest password or an unsecure network, the third option was enable social check-in. So trade a post, like a trade a check into this five guys location for free Wi-Fi. And then what was more interesting at the time was that by default, it would auto do it again the next time you came back, unless you opted out of that. And here's my long winded question. You know, I, I'm going to go to five, I'm going to just put you on the spot with five guys, right? Like, well, you know, when I go to Peoria, I eat at the same five guys every Monday night, like every Monday night. Thank you. By the way, we got to talk about that off offline because for years <laughs> I've been going there on Monday nights and they still can't get my order right. <laughs> mm. I don't know what that says about me or them. But anyway, but here's the thing. Like, uh, I'm on my phone while I'm waiting. You know, uh, half the time I eat there, half the time I might take it back to the hotel. But either way, I'm staring at my phone and I look around me and everybody else is too. And I just keep thinking like these restaurants, like they're already making money off of the people coming in there, right? I'm, I've already spent my money, my 15, 20 bucks or whatever it is. Now, how do we activate them? What, like, why aren't you guys activating them? You know, because it's like a $100, $200 device, probably a couple like stickers you put up around the uh, the building to, to uh, you know, QR codes like, hey, scan here to get free Wi-Fi. Have them social check in automatically. Like, don't tell them to post. Just make the Wi-Fi unit, encourage them through the login screen. I rambled that out why don't you guys do that? Like, why aren't more restaurants thinking about like how the experience is going to change or needs to change? Yeah. So when I think about it, I, I, I almost want to zoom out, um, you know, as opposed to double clicking, it's like, Hey, you know, you're, you're not wrong, but the, the better question as we zoom up to 10,000 feet is, you know, why aren't, it's not just restaurants. Why aren't brick and mortar trying to, to do more to, 
to create that bond in the dining room, retail space, whatever that, you know, empty time in line, all that stuff. And I think it's a great zoom out question, but I, I think we should put a pin in it and, and hold it for next week. Cause I, like, I, I literally like right before you went down that road, had my, had my pessimist hat out and I was getting ready to, to put it on and pull out the hammer. Cause I wanted to like hammer down more on this, you know, like l- legacy companies, um, performing poorly in this, in this new world economy. So I want to, I want to pull all that apart and, and I want to, I want to, I want to do it right. So let's, let's, let's pin it and we'll kill it next week. I'll, I'll let you off the hook. I'll let you off the hook. <laughs> but, but the listeners won't. So we don't get back to it. You will have your chance. And I, I guarantee you, you'll tell me that I'm wrong. So you will have your chance to pull out the band hammer next week on me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I think it's a great place to leave it. Any uh, other uh, urgent things you want to talk about today? No, I think that's gonna. I think that's gonna kill it. We'll see if we. Uh, we'll see if I get on planes next week. Uh, I think that's certainly an open question given the way the world is going. Ten, still tend to think I will, um, and I'll see if. We'll, obviously, we'll see if you hop on them as well. We'll see. We'll see. All right. If you guys are listening, don't forget you can always hit us up on social media, which is probably the best best place to make fun of us. Um, but if you have questions or topics that you want for a future show, show at resultsjunkies.com is another great way to find us until we uh, until we upload again. Mr. Singh, can't wait to see you on the other side. All right, bud. Have a great week. 